while we're doing this, while we're doing this, um, I just want you guys to know we have an incredible sound team. And you guys have no idea how many hours we've spent in the last two weeks making sure that everything works. Um, and everything works. And I'm very excited about it. So, um, and the reason is, the reason I'm so excited about it, there's one thing that drives me nuts, and that is interference in the transmission of God's word. It's hard enough to sort of challenge yourself, and to, but if you're constantly being distracted, it's even harder. So I'm very, thank you. Turn around and give them a round of applause. They work very hard. All right. Well, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. If you're new to Remnant, I would love to meet you. If you're not new to Remnant, I'd love to spend time with you. Uh, we have a potluck after the service, so uh, that'll be a chance for us to do that. We've been in a series about the Holy Spirit, and technically this is probably week 17 or something like that. I don't know, I lose track. Um, but we've been looking specifically at the person of the Holy Spirit. And we just spent four weeks on the moment when, when the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples. And, and today we're going to start another topic that, honestly, um, this is the one where this whole series starts to get pretty interesting. Not that it hasn't been, but this is where it starts to get interesting because I'm going to talk about charisma yeah, I said it, charisma. Yeah, those fighting words. Yeah, charisma, I said it right here in church. And I don't care, I'm not taking it back. I ain't scared. We're gonna talk about charisma. Throughout this series, we're gonna talk about what God's word says. We're, how about this word? Charismatic. Woo, all right, we're starting to split. You feel it? Do you know what charisma means? It's a Greek word. It's Greek to me. It's a noun. It means a gracious gift. Ooh. It really means a great gift that you don't deserve. Paul used the word charisma to describe the gifts that we receive from the Holy Spirit. People who believe in the spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit have been called charismatic. We just recently studied the fruit of the Spirit, and for the next five weeks or so, we're going to begin to look at some of the gifts of the Spirit. So I need to warn you, we're going full-blown charismatic. We're going to study the gifts that we don't deserve, and we're going to do it without any kind of freak-out part, the ones Jesus promised to us that'll give us power to witness. So the next time someone says, hey, is Remnant one of them charismatic churches? You can say, with confidence, absolutely, we think we've received great gifts we don't deserve. That's what it means. And today we're going to begin by exploring the most obvious gift, one that's often skipped over, not a gift of the Holy Spirit, but the gift of the Spirit himself. The greatest gift we will ever receive is the Spirit himself. We just spent four weeks on his arrival. Now we're going to move our focus to learning about him and the gifts that he brings to us that we don't deserve. So let me warn you, this sermon is packed with information. I've split it over a couple weeks. You may agree, you may not agree. I encourage you to listen to this sermon again and maybe again and go online and get out your Bible and pause the recording and pray through what you're hearing. 
Study the scriptures yourself. Don't take my word for it. Check and double check everything I say. We're gonna begin an exploration today of baptisms. Do the scriptures support one baptism? Two baptisms? Three baptisms? Even more? As you study the scripture regarding this topic, the way you sort through all the baptism passages in the Bible is you've got to, every time you read about baptism, you've got to ask yourself four questions so you know which one we're talking about. Who's being baptized? Who's doing the baptizing? What are they being baptized into? And when does that baptism happen? We're going to go through that. Let me, at the beginning, define what baptism is. Baptism, throughout Jewish history, water was used to purify, to cleanse. If you remember when we did the series on the temple, we talked about how the, the labor, how they cleansed themselves before they would approach God. It was part of the tabernacle. It was part of the, the eventual temple. Priests would frequently bathe themselves and cleanse themselves before approaching God. It was their way of trying to wash away the sins of the world that had collected on them and in them since the last time they saw God. The challenge was they kept having to do it over and over. Throughout Jewish history, the use of water was an instrument for religious and physical cleaning. Throughout the first five books of the Bible, water is constantly being used to talk about sanctification and cleansing. Those who committed certain defilable uh, offenses were required to immerse themselves in water in order to purify the body. Examples of those things would be touching a corpse, being around something dead, touching a dead animal, touching skin lesions, menstrual flow. There were things that were defined that required cleansing. The Greek word throughout the New Testament is baptizo. It means to dip, to completely immerse. Now, I always talk of the cool thing about Greek, and the reason I believe that God used Greek in the New Testament, is that every word in Greek has not only a meaning, but an image that goes with it. It's a very visual language. Baptizo means to immerse or to, to uh, dip. But the image that goes with that word is to take something and dye it, to take a cloth or something and dye it so that it can never be like it was before. Once it happens, it's changed. When you pull it out, you know it's been dyed. So baptism really means this sort of sense of being immersed and changed. It's the feeling that goes with a transforming experience. Baptism brings with it the emotion of life change. It carries the emotion of a profound, if not overwhelming, experience. During the second temple, and immediately prior to the arrival of Jesus, baptism was used to try to clean Gentiles. That was the funny part. The Jews could go straight into the temple. The Gentiles had to be bathed. Yep, got to clean the dirty Gentiles before they come into the temple. Gentiles were considered spiritually and ritually unclean, and they needed purification to go where the Jews go. Apart from 
proselyte baptism or Gentile baptism, some used immersion in water as a sign of repentance, as a sign of trying to cleanse themselves before God. There was a sect of believers uh, out in the, by the Dead Sea uh, in an area called Qumran, and they had ritualistic baths, mikvahs, that they took four, five, six, seven times a day. And their primary function was to copy God's word and keep it hidden. They believed that with the things going on in Jerusalem, that the temple would be raided. They went out to the Dead Sea. They lived in caves. They spent their day copying scripture. And they had to copy it exactly. If there was one mistake, they had to go back and start over again. So all day long, they cleansed themselves. They copied scripture. Cleansed themselves, copied scripture. Many believe that one of their people was John the Baptist who lived out by the Dead Sea and was likely part of their community. The Qumrans, they, they considered immersion specifically ineffective if you weren't also repentant and submitted. They were the first ones to sort of associate water cleansing with repentance and, and that sense of submission. Baptism in the early church became a way of initiating new believers into the Christian faith, just as it was earlier a way of bringing new Gentile believers into the Jewish faith. At the time of John the Baptist, baptism took on a different meaning. When John the Baptist baptized people, he was beginning to symbolize that transition that occurs from our death to our life in Christ. The, the immersion of water was essentially dying with Christ, raising to walk in newness of life. It was a, a, a symbolic response of the early apostles and church fathers that they were all in. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But you can understand because... A lot of times it's the sort of innuendo socially that makes scripture very interesting. We read it and we go, oh, John the Baptist was out in the Dead Sea baptizing people. No big deal. John the Baptist was out in the desert baptizing Jewish people. Jewish people. They didn't need to be baptized. He was telling Jewish people, you need to repent, you brood of vipers. You need to get baptized because the Messiah is coming and you're not ready. John the Baptist was this one voice in the desert telling people to prepare the way, to be ready. The Messiah is coming. And one of the ways he did that is he would tell people, you need to recognize you're not ready to receive the Messiah. You need to repent. You need to be baptized. You need to be immersed in something. You need to be cleansed and, and you need to be transformed. But the problem John the Baptist would say is, I can't do it. Now, it may surprise you, and we're going to go into this in detail, that scriptures support not just one, not just two, but I believe three distinct and unique baptisms. And we'll talk about that. Don't go crazy yet. We're going to study it together. We're going to look at the scriptures. We're going to ask the four questions. It's going to help us see it, but I got your attention now, don't I? You're going, one, two, let me see, three, that's three. Okay, we'll find out. So John the Baptist was likely part of the Qumran sect. He's out in the wilderness telling people to repent, get their hearts ready for the coming Messiah. Matthew 3, 1. 
In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who spoken of the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist is the voice that prepares the way for the Messiah. Matthew 3, 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea, translated Jews, and all the region about Jordan, Gentiles, were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Matthew 3.11. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John the Baptist teaches us, look, I'm doing this baptism of water here. It's a baptism based on the law. It's based on what you know. You know you've fallen short of God's law. So not just do the priests have to wash their hands, you need to wash yourself. And then when you come back, you need to do it again and again because you keep sinning. But this repentance, this acknowledgement that something's wrong, that you need a Messiah, is the first key step to being ready for the Messiah when he comes. John the Baptist tells us, look, there's a future baptism. One that I can't do, he says. A baptism done by the Messiah himself. A baptism not into water, but into the Holy Spirit and fire. John says this, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jews up to the point of John the baptizer have been trying to repent and cleanse themselves with water, but it was only temporary. It had to be repeated over and over. We saw that in the tabernacle, in the temple. But John said, there's a Messiah coming who's going to be baptizing too. He was a foreshadowing of the one to come. John the Baptist foretold that the first gift that we don't deserve is the gift of the Holy Spirit himself. The gift sent to us by Jesus. And Jesus promised the same. Acts 1.4 You heard me, Jesus says, you heard from me, for John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Both Jesus and John the Baptist say there is a baptism different from the one I'm doing, the water baptism, one that's coming. Different from the one with water, I baptize just with water, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now note that this baptism with the Holy Spirit is a future event. He's coming. Jesus is the one who will be doing the baptizing. He'll immerse believers not in water, but in the Holy Spirit. Clearly then, if Scripture, there's a separate baptism that involves Jesus and the Holy Spirit, different than water. What's interesting about this is that Jesus never baptized anybody. 
John 4, 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again from Galilee. Now, there's no evidence or mention in Scripture of Jesus ever baptizing anybody. Not the water baptism that we know. But we're told that Jesus will baptize in the Holy Spirit. We're told that Jesus must leave before the Holy Spirit can come. So in the future, there has to be a baptism that both Jesus and John the Baptist talked about that can only occur after Jesus leaves and the Holy Spirit arrives. After Jesus ascends to heaven and sends the Spirit. Now we know that Jesus himself was baptized with water. And when he did so, the Holy Spirit descended and stayed upon him. He was at the moment being baptized in water. Now a lot of people will debate whether he received the Holy Spirit at this point. What I need to tell you is he came full of the Spirit. He didn't receive it at his baptism. However, his baptism, we'll get to this next week, was a foreshadowing of the third baptism that we'll talk about. And I know this gets, you're gonna come out here going, what, one, two, three, we're gonna, it's all gonna make sense, I promise. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism of which I'm baptized? What Jesus is telling the disciples is, look, you haven't been baptized the way I've been baptized, not yet. You've been baptized with water, I'm full of the Spirit. You have not yet received the Spirit that I'm in. He says the baptism with which I'm baptized, he spoke of a baptism that he has received, but they have not. And then he gives them a promise. And they said to him, we are able, and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be, future tense, baptized. He promises a future event. One day, you will receive a baptism that I've already received. Okay, do you understand so far? I'm gonna make it more confusing. So if people ask you, is there a baptism of the Holy Spirit that is unique and distinct from water baptism, you can say with confidence from Scripture, yes. Don't take my word for it. Take Jesus's. You've heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You heard from me. Most reliable source ever. A promise of a baptism of the Spirit to come. But if it's that clear, why is there controversy? What's the controversy about? Why is the topic of being baptized in the Holy Spirit so volatile? You don't believe me, the next time you're with a bunch of Christians, do this. The next time you're at a concert or let's say a conference and you're in the car on the way up there, you know, whatever, just bring up baptism in the Holy Spirit and watch what happens. You'll discover quickly there are two groups. There's charismatics and there's charisphobics. And they love to try to prove that they're right. And honestly, I don't know who's right. So I need to warn you that sometimes when you study God's word, 
you end up with more questions than answers. Start out thinking, you think you figured it all out. I always tell people when you're sure you know something about the scriptures, you need to keep studying until you're confused. Because the more you ask, the more you delve, the more you discover that God knows things you don't know. What you thought was clear is not always clear. One of the hardest things of studying the Bible is to get rid of your preconceived notions and look at what the Bible actually says. Not what you've heard about what it says, what does it actually say? And you've gotta be comfortable being uncomfortable. I think God does that on purpose. God has only revealed to us what we need to know. We're on a need to know basis. In fact, most of the time we don't get all the answers. You see, because the key point of Bible study is not giving you answers. The key point of Bible study is to spend time with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and give you enough answers to take the next step in faith, whatever that is. God didn't promise you'd have all your questions answered. But what he did say is, I'll give you enough information that you can confidently in faith take the next step. We study scripture and God gives us just enough. Yet we want our theology tied up in a bow. Like we can just, it's right there. It is this, it's not that. And we'll start arguing about it. It's not that, it's this. Doesn't turn out that way. A lot of times what starts out as a question opens up a lot more questions. One of the key points of diving deep into scripture is to force you and I to spend time with the Holy Spirit. To teach them all things. Sometimes I think God doesn't give us clear answers so we can develop a relationship with him asking questions. The experience rather than the answer is the important thing. I told you that I'm on this journey with you, just like you. I come to Scripture with my own set of glasses, my own worldview, shaped who I've been, what I've taught, what I've seen. I have a Western worldview. I have a Baptist upbringing. One of my four years in seminary was at a Baptist seminary. I've been very involved in Pentecostal ministries of the Dream Center and other places. I've been shaped by various things. But the truth is not my worldview or my opinion. The truth is scripture. Doesn't matter what I think, doesn't matter what I've experienced, doesn't matter what I'm comfortable with or uncomfortable with. The question is, what does God's scripture say about this? One of the hardest things to do when it comes to scripture is to do what Martin Luther did. Sola Scriptura. What he meant by that was by scripture alone. We're gonna do this God thing by scripture alone. It's what the entire Protestant Reformation is based on. God has a truth, he has revealed it to us. Our job is to understand it, not argue with it or change it. If God said it, it's true. God revealed to us in scripture, so we have to use scripture as our primary source of understanding what God's teaching us. But sometimes different people look at the same scripture through different lenses. Not wrong, just different. We need to remember that as we begin to unpack this concept of baptism and baptism in the spirit, I made a promise when we started this series that we would study the scriptures together, that we would let the scriptures guide and teach us and the Holy Spirit will teach us all things just like he always does. 
But before we take one step further, I, I need to make sure we all understand that when it comes to the Holy Spirit, some of the scripture is black and white. Some of it's very gray. I can see how people who love Jesus can read the same scriptures and perhaps come up with different opinions that don't violate the core key concepts of the faith. If someone's absolutely sure they know this, perfect, this topic perfectly, they need to study some more until they're confused. It's the way it is. People who love Jesus, people who've repented, people who've been baptized with water, people who will be in heaven with all of us, Christ followers, all of us will be in heaven. Our salvation is sealed because of our faith. We're all going to be there. We love God's word. We walk in the spirit. We all have the Holy Spirit. We all have this desire to do what Jesus tells us to do, to surrender our lives, to die to ourselves. All of us have that. We can still have all that and disagree about what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit and even baptism. It's okay. It's not worth splitting over. We'll see that when it comes to this topic, God gave us just enough information to walk together in faith but not enough for us to walk in certainty. You see, if you have certainty, you don't need faith. In order for you to have faith in something, there's gotta be a little bit of doubt. That's why we're on a faith journey. We, what we know is enough, but it's not everything. And we have to admit there are some things we just don't know. And particularly, we've gotta be careful filling in the blanks where God chose not to fill in blanks. So later this week, when you're talking to someone at church and you find out that they have a completely different perspective about the Holy Spirit, don't freak out. Plenty of gray. Just remember, the problem with Christ followers today is that we're better known for what we're against than who we're for. Never let theologic debates about gray zones hinder those who are seeking. There are people watching you and me. They don't understand the technicalities, they look at us as we talk about this and they go, y'all don't have a clue what you're talking about. As we dive in, we need to heed Paul's warning to Timothy. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Avoid irreverent babble. We talked about babble last week. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Don't major in the minors, he's saying. And if you're going to do it, don't do it in front of seekers. We are to rightly handle the word of truth, demand compliance where the scriptures are true, walk in faith and extend grace where it's gray, but avoid irreverent babble. Because those looking at us won't understand the argument. All they'll see is a bunch of people arguing. Baptism number one. I call it the baptism of faith. Let's start out with what's very clear in Scripture. No one really debates the first baptism. Nobody. We don't call it a baptism, but we don't debate it. Yet it's the moment that is the most life-transforming. This baptism is by far the most important and it's one nobody can miss. The first baptism occurs when we repent. It is a baptism of the Holy Spirit that occurs when we surrender and we trust Jesus to save us. It occurs the moment we repent. 
It is the Holy Spirit that leads us to conviction. It's the Holy Spirit that reveals truth to us. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us faith to acknowledge that God's right and we're wrong and to confess our sins and repent. All the actions in this moment are being done by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, neither you or I would be believers in Christ. He selected us, he found us, he revealed truth to us. We think we chose to follow Jesus and in a sense we did, but the reality is he chose us first. And he revealed truth to us and we responded to what was undeniably true. Peter told the crowd, remember, repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. He's actually outlining three overwhelming spiritual experiences. The first baptism is the moment you repent. If you've been born again, the Holy Spirit drew you to God. He convicted you of your sins. He made you aware of how you're separated from God. He led you to repent, to go away from your old ways. He convinced you to trust what Jesus did on the cross to save you. And you responded to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in the moment that you repented. In that moment, the Holy Spirit created a new you. You were baptized not into water, but into Jesus. You became in Christ. It is a baptism by the Holy Spirit into Christ. Distinctly different from water baptism and distinctly different from the baptism where the Spirit fell. Every believer has experienced the first baptism. Through your faith in Jesus, you immersed yourself in him. The scriptures talk about being in Christ. You and I are in Christ. We were literally following our sinful ways. The Holy Spirit took us, and if you want to think of it spiritually, literally immersed us in Jesus. And when we rose out of that immersion in Jesus, we are no longer sinners. We're now saved people, sealed by the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, reborn spiritual beings who still live in a flesh body. Okay? The first baptism we would call being born again. Okay? It is literally a baptism into Christ. You receive salvation and your eternity is secure from that moment forward. Every person, please hear this, every person who has ever surrendered to Christ and truly repented has received the Holy Spirit. Okay, you don't earn it, you can't get it, you have it. You're born again spiritually. And I've talked over and over about why I believe you can't lose it. You're literally a new creature, a new creation in Christ. Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be reborn. You are no longer a human trying to have a spiritual experience. You're now a spiritual being having a human experience. Your home is not here, it's in heaven. You're here for a while. The Holy Spirit drew you. He's doing all of it. We just act in faith. The work of the first baptism is done by the Holy Spirit. Paul said it this way. For we were all, 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 all. Raise your hand if you're an all. All you out in TV land. Yeah, okay, we're all. Baptized by what? One spirit. Into what? One body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. We were all, everybody who's a believer, baptized into one body, the body of Jesus Christ. 
And we were all given at that moment one spirit. It's not confusing. It's crystal clear in Scripture. By one spirit, the Holy Spirit, into one body, Jesus Christ, he is essentially the ark of our salvation. We're all given one spirit to drink. Now notice this, I sort of brought it up a minute ago. We are all, every one of us, not one believer missed. Didn't matter if you were Jew, Greek, slave, free, all baptized by the Holy Spirit into Jesus Christ the moment you repented and asked for salvation. This baptism is universal for all believers. If you haven't been through it, you're not a believer. If you profess your faith in Christ, you believe that he died and resurrected, you repent of your sins, you have been through this baptism, you just didn't call it that. The scriptures did. You were literally immersed in Christ, like a cloth immersed in to die, never again to be the same. You were baptized into Christ. Every believer, when they repent, I know I keep saying this over and over, but it's amazing how many people struggle with this. Every believer receives the full Spirit of God. You don't have to go get it. It's there. The first baptism is the most important because it seals your salvation. The Scriptures talk about how we are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. What that means is, is that we're not redeemed yet, we're still sinners. We still need to be saved. But our faith in Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit is our seal that when that day comes, it's been paid for. We're kind of on layaway. It's paid in advance. Notice that the only part in this entire process that is ours to do is to have faith in what the Spirit reveals. We are saved by faith. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit by faith. We come to Christ by faith. We are saved through our faith. It's not works, Paul would say, over and over and over. Stop taking credit for it. You didn't do it. It's by faith. Everything done by the Holy Spirit. All the other baptisms are essentially icing on the cake. Gracious gifts we don't deserve. We know that the criminal on the cross believed in Jesus but was never water baptized, never spoke in tongue. Yet Jesus said, I'll see you in paradise. The first baptism is the only one that really matters. It is the most important. So just to be clear, baptism number one, by the Holy Spirit, into Jesus, salvation secure. It's at the moment of faith and repentance that you change from being a human being on a spiritual experience to a spiritual being on a human experience. You are saved. You can never die. You are eternal. Your home is in heaven. It's not here anymore. Your mission is no longer you. It's God. The only reason you and I have been left here, it's really clear. The only reason you and I are left here is to show God to people that don't know him. Otherwise, he'd take us to heaven the minute that we surrender. But he said, no, I gotta leave you there because if people are gonna see Jesus, they're gonna see it in you. Baptism number two. This is the one we all know. Baptism of water. 
right? We've all seen this before. We've witnessed people getting baptized here at church or at the beach or elsewhere. That's the uh, Sea of Gal- or that's the uh, Jordan River. Baptism is pretty obvious to most of us. We still find things to argue about, though. We don't want to miss a chance to argue. Believer's baptism, infant baptism, water pouring, sprinkling, immersing. Yeah, once, twice, more than once. I mean, we can argue about all kinds of things. We have a bunch of splitters in the church. So let's unpack the second baptism. After you've repented, after you have received the Holy Spirit, after you are a saved believer, follower of Jesus, child of God, whatever you want to say, you got it all. If you're obedient to the commands of Scripture, you make the decision to choose to experience a second baptism. And we call it the believer's baptism of water. Okay? This is the baptism most of us are familiar with. It's the one Jesus had in mind when he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This baptism is done by another believer. Remember, who does it? Another believer. They're baptized into water, distinctly different than Jesus, being baptized into Christ. It represents a cleansing effort before God. Remember that? We talked about that how in the Old Testament, that's what it represented. It had to keep getting repeated in the Old Testament. This baptism in the Old Testament was man's attempt to clean up before God. John the Baptist said, look, I got a new baptism. Nothing compared to the spiritual baptism that Jesus is going to bring. Now notice I said believer's baptism of water. Stay with me here. Prior to Jesus, there were people baptized with water. We talked about it. Qumran, John the Baptist, they baptized with water. We spoke about how it represented a cleansing effect before God. It was limited, it had to be continually repeated. This baptism was man's attempt to clean up and prepare for the arrival of the Messiah. John the Baptist said, this baptism I do has nothing compared to what's coming. So we use the term water baptism to represent what happened prior to Christ and believers. So when you hear the term water baptism, they're talking about the cleansing in the Old Testament. When they talk about believers' water baptism, it's the second baptism for those who are in Christ. It's for believers. It's for people sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's what we would call baptism. The believers' baptism of water is about consecration. Consecration means to be set apart. To tell others, not only have we been saved, not only have we been sealed by the Holy Spirit, Not only have we received Jesus in faith and been baptized, immersed into Christ, I'm now telling you, brothers and sisters and entire world, I'm trusting the work of the Holy Spirit to change me. I want to pursue holiness. I want to walk in newness of life. I want to live a life committed to dying to my old self and walking in the Holy Spirit. The second baptism in many ways represents the truth that we've been saved, born again, spiritual believers, but we remain in a sin of flesh and we live in a sinful world. 
It is our recognition, it's a statement as a born-again believer that we need the Holy Spirit to continue to transform us and change us. It is our public declaration that while we still struggle with sin, we know in the end we'll be victorious. But between now and then, we need each other to hold us accountable, to teach us truth, to forgive us, to work with us, to love us, to pick us up when we fall down, to help us when we fail. What we're saying is like, I'm a believer in Christ. I'm sealed, I'm saved. But my water baptism is telling all my church family and the entire world that I'm all in. It's our public statement of consecration. Our awareness that we've been set apart for the purpose and ministry of Jesus. We're essentially telling the world, my life's not about securing my salvation, it's already secure. I want to pursue holiness. I want to be like Jesus. I want to stop sinning. I've trusted Jesus for my salvation. Now I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to change me. I believe that Jesus' way is better, but I need the Holy Spirit to help me because I'm too weak to do it myself. I need his power. I want my life to reflect Jesus' holiness so others can see Christ in me. I want my life to be about others. I want to stop living for myself. I want to show them Jesus, and it starts with me. And on this day, I'm surrendering to the first step of obedience that Jesus told us to do after we surrender in faith. I'm getting baptized because I want the world to know that I'm all in. I want those who don't know Jesus to understand that I'm coming up out of this water and after you. I trust the Holy Spirit to work through me to save you and other people that I love. It is this this baptism where we tell the world and our church family and God, I'm all in. I didn't just receive salvation. I get the picture. I know why I'm here. I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything at any cost, any time, God. I'm coming up out of this water and I'm chasing you. Church family, please hold me accountable. Teach me the truth. Hold me to it. When I do stupid things, call me on it. I'm all in, but I'm all in with all of you too. You see, the idea of a church family is that we're all in one mind and one accord and one spirit, one truth. Every one of us should be focused on making each other more presentable to Jesus. And that should be the most important thing we do. Sometimes we have to hurt feelings. Sometimes we have to speak truth, but our desire out of love is that on that day when Jesus looks at us, we can look at each other and say, we got here. We did this. We've worked out together. Okay, so we have no problem so far, right? Baptism number one, surrendered into Christ. Baptism number two, water. We get it. Baptism number one, by the Holy Spirit, into Christ at our moment of repentance. We are immersed in Jesus, demonstrating our trust and faith in Jesus to save us. Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We were dead. Now we're alive. No longer dead in sin, alive in Christ. Born again, spiritual being. Eternal member of God's family, saved, secure, sealed. Whatever you want to say, we're it. 
Baptism number two. By the Holy Spirit through people into water. A moment of consecration. Setting ourselves aside to pursue holiness. Not by our power, acknowledging we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Demonstrating our faith and trust for the Holy Spirit to transform us. In believer water baptism, we symbolically identify with Christ and his death and resurrection. We come up out of the water not because we've completed the mission, but because we're starting it. Let me repeat that. We come out of the water not because we're ending the mission, but because we're starting it. We're not here about salvation. We're here to be saved and then be effective for Christ. We're not the frozen chosen waiting to look to the sky and fly. That's not us. We're here doing God's work on an enemy planet. We come from another place. We're empowered with gifts that don't come from here to change people's lives. We've risen to walk in newness of life. If, if, you ever, if I've ever baptized you, what you heard before you went under was because of your faith in Jesus Christ, I, your brother, baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You were dead in your sin. And then I dunk you and hold you for a really long time. And then I pull you up and say, but now you can walk in newness of life. That's what it's about. You coming up out of the water is symbolic of Jesus walking out of the tomb. There's work to do. There's people to save. There's a mission to be on. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Do we all know what grace is? Unmerited favor. Charisma. A gift you don't deserve. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're in Christ. We've been baptized into Christ. Dead, alive together with Christ, raised up to new life. That's the symbol, symbolism of water baptism. You're dead in your sin. You're alive with Christ. You're walking as a new person. But then we turn to the third baptism. Everything gets interesting. So come back next week. We're going to talk about the third baptism. But even as we open up this topic, I want to say a few things. I want to make a few things crystal clear if I haven't already beat them into the ground. The first baptism secures your salvation. True repentance, true brokenness, true surrender, genuine trust in what God did on the cross. Surrender your life to Jesus. You are saved, period. You don't add to it. You don't have to perform. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to attend church. You do have to serve in children's ministry. You don't have to give to the church. You don't have to do anything. You are saved and secured. But here's the thing, and James will talk about this in another book. If all that's happened to you, you can't sit still. You can't just hang out. The Holy Spirit's got work for you to do. You're going to be prompted to work and to do things for God because of your salvation, not to get your salvation. Okay? So... Your salvation never hinges on you experiencing any other baptism. You'll hear people say, well, you're not really saved if you don't speak in tongues. I hear people say that. Can I just tell you, Jesus is never recorded as speaking in tongues. 
Not once in Scripture. That's something to think about. The guy on the cross, he never spoke in tongues. Yet we're guaranteed that he's in heaven. Second baptism is all about consecration. The third baptism we're going to discover is about power. So if someone says your salvation depends upon being baptized in water or being baptized in the spirit or speaking in tongues, they've misinterpreted scripture. Pull them aside, away from anybody else listening. Gently and kindly in love, redirect them to the criminal on the cross. He was neither baptized, didn't speak in tongues, and is guaranteed to be in paradise. All the hubbub about this third baptism, the baptism where the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples in Solomon's portico on Pentecost, I've seen churches split. I've seen Christians almost come to fisticuffs and incredible angst over this baptism. This baptism is where charismatics and charisphobics, they, they square off. And it's going to take all next week to unpack it. But I'm going to tell you something. It's clear in Scripture, and it's not that threatening, and it's not that horrible. And we actually all agree, we just call it different things. But here's the truly sad part. While Satan has presumed or moved believers to argue over the third baptism, and we all know it, right? You've heard the arguments about the third baptism of spirit. Many people have missed the first, and they don't even know it. They're arguing about whether there's a third baptism and they haven't had the first. They've skipped repentance. They've skipped brokenness. They were never baptized into Christ because they never agreed with him about their true nature. Never agreed with him about the sins that they actually committed. Never got on their knees and said, I need you, Jesus, I can't stop. I need a savior because I'm dying here. Too many churches allow seekers to believe that they come to Christ without any repentance, without any brokenness. Just say a prayer and you're saved. Hey, we can baptize you this afternoon. They teach, do you think you're a sinner? Do you think Jesus died for sinners? Let's go baptize you. There's a brokenness that has to occur. One great evangelist, uh, I can't I always draw a blank on who it was. I got to look this up so I quit telling this story. He would do revivals. And he'd start preaching. How many of y'all grew up in a Baptist church with a summer revival under a tent where mosquitoes bite you and it's really hot? Been there, done that too many times. Um, but they start preaching on Sunday night and they go every night until the next Sunday night and it's called a revival. He would begin preaching. And if anybody came down on Monday or Tuesday, he'd tell them, turn and go back to their seat because they're not broken enough yet. God hadn't had enough time to bathe them in their sins and make them realize what they really deserve. So they would come to the altar. You go, you go back and you sit down until Wednesday. <laughs> By then, the Holy Spirit will have worked on you. Peter said, repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. Repent, don't skip that step. They're in order because they're in order. 
You can't be baptized, you can't receive the Holy Spirit if you don't repent. You may have a moment of goosebumps down at the altar, but if there's not brokenness and there's not an understanding that you need a Savior and you still think you can add Jesus to your schedule, you're not broken. You have to agree with God about your inability to do anything about it. Agree with God that the one thing you know above everything else on this planet is you need to be saved. And you can't save yourself because you have to be saved from yourself. You have to kill your sinful nature. You have to hate it, like I said last week, you have to hate it like cancer. Get this out of me. It's gonna kill me. You need Jesus and you need to believe in him to save you. So let's not worry about baptism number two, number three, number four, number 10, until we're absolutely sure we've been immersed in Christ. That the Holy Spirit has drawn us to him. The next few minutes, the altar's gonna be open. Natalie's gonna sing for us. I want all of us just to go back to that moment and make sure that we're all in. I want us to go back and make sure that there was a moment when we were on our knees, even if that moment is right now, and we're like, God, I gotta have you because I can't keep doing this. Let's pray. God, I thank you that your scriptures are clear if we would just read them. Help us, God, to unpack your scriptures. Help us to understand what it means to be immersed in Christ, to be consecrated and set apart for the mission. Help us, God, as we continue to unpack your Holy Spirit. I pray right now, God, that you're working in this room. I don't want anybody to leave this room without being born again. So God, help us as we surrender ourselves to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.